Probably mostly everybody listening to this podcast right now could tell me what you were doing on September 11th, 2001, especially what you were doing when you found out what was happening. I was in Mr. Siegfried's history class, and he turned on the TV to show us, and that's what I remember. I remember different scenes throughout the rest of the day as well. 9-11 was a terrible day. Thousands of people were killed. Terrible things happened. Terrible scenes played out across the country. And terrible things were done by terrible people. Today I have a story for you about 9-11 that is not terrible. This is episode 10 of the I Was There When podcast. My name is Shirley Brooks-Jones, and I was there when I spent six days as an unexpected guest in Newfoundland, Canada, as a result of terrorist activities of 9-11. I first heard about this story because, believe it or not, there's actually a Broadway play about it. We're going to get to that a little bit later in my conversation with Shirley. But here's what happened. Shirley was on a plane on the morning of 9-11. She was on her way back to the U.S. from a trip overseas. She actually served on the board of directors for an organization called People to People International. This was something launched by President Dwight D. Eisenhower, and it's meant to be sort of a cultural exchange program, which is so surely to be on that board, but it's also almost kind of eerie the way that the story we're about to hear plays out and its connections to this organization. So Shirley was on a plane. She was on her way back to the U.S. when the first plane hit the first tower in New York City. So she was rerouted to a tiny town in Newfoundland, Canada called Gander. 37 other planes currently making their way to the U.S. were rerouted there as well. That's where our story gets started. Okay, so I want to start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were en route to. Um, I had been in Denmark for meetings. I was traveling with a friend of mine. So when we left Aalborg, we flew to Copenhagen. Then we flew from Copenhagen to Frankfurt, Germany. So September the 10th, we landed. We had a great time. So the next morning we get up and at 9.30 on September the 11th, I'd be home. We were flying from Frankfurt, Germany to Atlanta then she would go from there to West Palm Beach, Florida, and I would come here to Columbus. Okay. Well, so you were en route to Atlanta. We were in, uh-huh, en route. Uh, we were about four and a half, five hours out from Frankfurt, Germany, when the captain came on the PA system and told us that we had a slight emergency, had something to do with an indicator light on the plane. He said, so we're going to put down at Gander, Newfoundland, and take a look, see what what the problem is. And so he said, and by the way, we're too heavy to land at Gander, so we're going to have to dump 30,000 pounds of fuel. So we circled and circled. So how close were you to Gander at that point? We were were probably about less than 100 miles from Gander. Okay, fairly close. Yeah. So when we came in for our landing, it seemed really strange the way the planes were parked at Gander Airport. So there were a lot of planes there. There were a lot of planes there, and they just kept coming in. And once we got parked, the captain came back on and apologized, as he called it, 
the ruse. He said, actually, the equipment is fine. But he said, there's a national emergency in the United States. All the uh, borders are closed and the airspace is now under control of the military. Well, I've been kind of kind of dozing a little bit. And, mm. and I've told a lot of people, I felt like I was in the middle of a 30-minute Rod Serling black and white Twilight Zone episode. You sure. Know, I'm waking up, I'm thinking, did I hear what he said, what I thought he said? And then he said, plane has hit one of the Twin Towers in New York City. And I'm thinking... Well, why would the borders be closed? Because I can remember when I was a little girl, there was a plane that had hit the Empire State Building, and I was fascinated by that. And I'm sure, thinking, but an why would they buy? Why would they close the borders mm-hmm. for that? And then he said, and the Pentagon has been hit, and something has happened outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I've never heard such silence as there was on our plane. There was never any panic aboard our plane. Mm-hmm. I've told a lot of people that Captain Michael Sweeney was one of my heroes during that period of time because what he did the whole time we sat aboard the plane. Now, we sat aboard the plane for 28 and a half hours. We were not allowed off. After landing. Yes, after landing. You're we, we sat aboard. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> but Mike, uh, uh, Captain Sweeney monitored the BBC, and he was able to get us whatever kind of information. And then he would say, is this true? I don't know. Is this, you know, is this whatever. So he did this for many, many, many hours yeah. as we're aboard that plane. Okay. But I did something I've never done before. I got, got my, uh, my notebook out from my flight bag. This is a copy of what I wrote during the period of time, you know, from the time he told us we were going to put down in Gander. Shirley's notes from this are absolutely meticulous. It just reminds me of something I would do. You don't have anything to do. You're scared. You have no idea what's going on in the outside world. You start writing. I totally identify with that. So she's writing things like, okay, the captain just told us that maybe something happened in Pittsburgh. Now there's a second plane. Now there's a second tower. There's this many people on our flight, that sort of thing. And it's such a great record to have now. So anyway, he told us then um, when the second tower had been hit. He told us how long each of the towers had stood before they collapsed. Mm. He told us, you know, how many, you know, what he could find out, um, how many people had been killed, uh, what the situation was. Mm -hmm. And of course, he would say, is this a rumor? I don't know. Is this, you know, whatever, whatever. But it was really eerie aboard that plane. Mm. People were very, very quiet. They talked very softly. It was a time before everybody had, well, certainly not smartphones or anything like that, but but even cell phones. The ones who did have cell phones tried to make calls. None of the calls were going through. Nothing was going through. Nothing, nothing. But anyway, he he, um, each time he could get a little bit of information, he relayed that to us. Mm. Why did... Why was so many planes directed there? Is it just the easternmost? Yeah. Well, what the uh, planes, the captains were told, mm-hmm. um, was to land at the airport that is closest to your where you're located right now. Okay. Okay. And many of the planes had had not gone 
well, to the point of no return. If they hadn't gone that, but they had to turn around and go back where they had come from. I see. We had gone, you know, past that. Yeah, yeah. past that. And Gander was the closest to where. I see. Now, I talked with the captain sometime later, and I said, you know, what did you think about that? And he said, I really didn't want to put down a Gander. He said, I wanted to go on to Halifax. Yeah. Because it would be bigger and better, you know, whatever mm-hmm. and everything else. But you know, he said you were not allowed. You had to land. Oh, sure. And but um, one of the one of the uh, flight engineers, we talked with, to one another quite a bit, and he said that um, <clears throat> they could hear what the other planes, the people, oh, were, the traffic, the, the traffic, yeah. uh-huh, were talking. And he said a number of of the of the pilots said they didn't want to land wherever it was that was the closest. They wanted to go on. They were going to go on to where they, and they were told no in certain terms. You will land or you'll be shot out of the air. Well, had we known that, (laughs) we'd have been kind of scared. A little bit more anxious. Yeah, we'd been, we'd have been, yeah, yeah. We had on our flight, I was on Delta Flight 15. We had 218 passengers mm-hmm. and uh, and the crew. We were not a full flight, so it was not uncomfortable. I mean, we could, you know, put stretch the armrests out, out and stretch out and walk around. We could see what was going on outside. Mm-hmm. And we had plenty of, of water. There was no problem with, oh, you know, with, with fluids mm-hmm. or anything. And you could use the restroom. And, and Yeah, and that was the other thing. Oh, this is a good story. Um, we were on that plane all those hours. And I'd heard stories about, you know, planes parked, you know, but not you able to to take off and everything and what happens in the, with the toilets know, right. we never had that problem and I kept saying somebody had to be responsible for making sure that those toilets were in working order mm-hmm. but we never saw anybody doing anything hmm. I mean no we didn't see it and so yeah. each time I would go back I would try to find out who that person was yeah. I knew there had to How be somebody yeah. who was responsible for that and I finally found him a few years ago he was he was a fireman. Shirley discovered that this was a local fireman from the Gander Fire Department who had just heard about what happened and quietly came in, came on the scene, and was, I guess, emptying the toilets or however that works. Um, but he never, you know, came on board or introduced himself or anything like that. He just got his hands dirty for the cause. We were able to look out the windows and see what was going on around us. And we could see these pickup trucks and cars and everything coming into the airport. And, of course, we didn't know at that point what they were doing, you know, but they were bringing food and and everything. I mean, it, it, it was amazing. Coming from where? From the, uh, the little tiny towns all around Gander. So these trucks and people were bringing in food from all over Gander and the surrounding areas, but they weren't bringing the food to bring onto the planes. That was just not logistically possible. What they ended up doing, Shirley tells me, is they were setting up these huge tables in the airport of free food, basically. And as soon as all of these hungry, tired, frustrated, scared people got off of their flights several hours later, They were treated to just this giant buffet of free food from all over Newfoundland. I mean, that's Gander's in the central part of Newfoundland. Somehow the word had gotten out. The word got out. And what happened 
it ended up there were 38 jumbo jets from all over the world sitting on the tarmac in Gander with about 7,000 passengers. Now, Gander had fewer than 10,000 population. What are they going to do with all of us? Now, they called us the plain people. So sure. I'm one of the plain people. Okay. And I, I wear that title with pride. I really, <laughs> I think really so. do. Yeah. yeah. So uh, during the period of time that we sat aboard those planes, the mayor of Gander and the mayors of all these other little tiny towns got together along with the ministers of of the churches and the Salvation Army people to try to figure out what they were going to do with the blind people because they had no no idea how long we would be there, sure. what we would need or anything else. Well, finally, after 28 and a half hours, we got the word that we were going to be unloading. We were not allowed to take luggage. All we had was the clothes on our back and, you know, if I, you had a flight bag or something like that. You so hang on. I, I want to talk about the 28 hours mm-hmm. a little bit okay. more. Okay. So you were getting food. No. We had had, I, I tell people, we had had our last meal. Yeah, in up the above air. the North Atlantic. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So there was no really no no food. Now, at one point, I went back to the back of the airplane, and uh, this one flight attendant was back there, and she's pulling the food carts out to try to see if there's anything on those carts that would be usable. Mm-hmm. And so I stood there and I said, "What can I do to help?" So she she was down, you know, sitting on the floor pulling this stuff out, and there might be a bag of of chocolate chip cookies or a bag of of cheese and crackers. She was taking them off and then I'm putting them in piles, you know, to see. So then that way they could tell what they had and divided among the people that we had on right. the plane, you know, so there was no, no planned meals or anything. But were you people know, sleeping? They like were, we're, people were being very, very quiet, hmm. talking very quietly. I've never experienced anything quite like that sure. before. Everybody was concerned about everybody hmm. else, you know, and each time he would tell us something else that had happened. And then, of course, people eventually, I think it was about two and a half hours hours after we had landed, finally some of the phone calls started getting through. You could hear them. I mean, you know, through all those hours that we were trying to get through, it was like if they punched the numbers harder, the calls would go through, you know. And <laughs> yeah. finally, finally, as they got through, you could hear them talking. They weren't talking real loud, yeah. you know, like they were talking very softly, very, very quietly. The generosity of the people who had telephones was something I'll never mm. forget. They loaned their phones to other people who didn't have. In several different cases, there were people who passed around a piece of paper and said, um, write your name and the number, uh, name and number of somebody you'd like to have notified, and I'll have my my wife or my assistant or whatever, you know, get in touch with them. Yeah. So there were a lot of generous things that happened. Um, but Did the, you have family and friends that were worried about you that couldn't yeah, find you? And yeah, well, my husband I found out later had been um, on the way to the golf course, and he heard yeah. about this. Oh, so he he just zipped out to Port Columbus. And he went to Delta Airlines and tried to find out, you know, what was going on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he he hung out there for hours and hours. And finally, finally, they told him, you know, where I was and everything else. So finally, um, at one point, we were able to get through to Ron. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) you do some of the silliest things when you're under a lot of stress. When I finally heard his voice, I said, hi, how are you? What are you up to? (laughs) What's going on? (laughs) What's going on? 
that's, that's about what it was. Oh, you know? how funny. And, yeah. and I said, I thought I'd let you know where we were. And he said, oh, I know where you are. Right. Did you get to know a lot of the other passengers during that time? When we were on the plane, not really. Okay. We kind of walked around a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. talked with one another. and But everybody was just so eager to find out, you know, what really was going sure. on and, and all that kind of stuff. But finally, when we got the word that we were going to be taken off the plane and we would be taken to, we didn't know where we were going to be taken right. to. But during that period of time, the, the mayors and the ministers and the Salvation Army got together to determine how many people each of these little tiny towns could take care of. And there's one so I'm sure they didn't have they don't have hotels like No, they uh, I think I think Gander had uh, room enough to take care of about 500 people. Now there there were about 7,000. Right. So, it's not going to do it. No, it's not going to do it. So each of these little towns said, "Well, we can take X number of passengers okay. and we can, you know, we can put them in and they certainly didn't have hotels or you know things sure. like that." But um, the little town I was assigned to was a little town called Lewisport. Okay. And it was about 30 miles away from, from Gander. And what they decided to do was to, to put us in. We, we were in churches and schools and service clubs. People offered their homes. But the decision was made really to keep us in bigger groups so that when we got the word, you wouldn't have to go around and, and you, you know. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Sure, because I'm sure without yeah. phones, too, that's more complicated. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Now, the school bus drivers in that area had been on strike and when they found out what had happened, all but one walked off the picket line. They got into their school buses from all these little teeny tiny towns, mm-hmm. went into the airport at Gander, and they waited because they knew they would be needed. Yeah. It was just absolutely, utterly amazing. Right. I mean, and the people, I mean, they were so organized. I mean, it's still, you know, here it is. It's going to be 17 years in September. And I still, it still makes my head hurt. The logistics of what sure. those people did in that short period of time, how they assigned us to the different locations, how they all brought food in, and how the some people had packed their, their prescription medications mm. in their checked luggage. We had no access to the checked luggage. Sure. So the mayor of um, the mayor and his wife of the little town of Lewisport, <clears throat> in our situation, they'd get those people in their vehicles, take them to the local doctor. She would take care of them and write the prescriptions. She wouldn't charge anything at all. And the local pharmacist would fill those prescriptions. No charge. They wouldn't take any money for anything. One one of my one of my fa- well I've got so many favorite stories it's just amazing <laughs> but one of mine is I'm the oldest of nine children oh. and when I uh, went to school I was so nearsighted that I had to hold things almost to the tip of my nose in oh. order to see even as a so, child mm-hmm, okay mm-hmm. so that the, the um, school nurse had sent a note home and said Shirley needs an eye examination because she definitely needs glasses well there wasn't any money for that mm. and so the school nurse got in touch with the local Lions Club, and the local Lions Club paid for that first eye examination, first pair of glasses, and I'll never forget coming out of there with those glasses, and I saw people had freckles on their faces, and I could read street signs and everything. Okay, so all these years later, I get off of the school bus at the place where I had been assigned in Lewisport, Newfoundland. I look up, 
and I kid you not, it was the Lewisport Lions Center. And I couldn't, I mean, even, I mean, I, every time I think about it or anything, I get really emotional. Because, and then I started to cry. And all my life I had kept, I, I didn't cry. You kept your emotions inside because you didn't want your little brothers and sisters seeing you, know, you cry. Well, my friend said, what's wrong? And I said, the lions are still taking care of me. Oh, how sweet. <laughs> so we go in. And they have tables set up in a U-shape, white tablecloths, flowers on the table, silverware. You could smell the coffee brewing. You could smell food being cooked in the in the kitchen mm-hmm. and everything else. And they had brought in mats, gym mats from the high school. Okay. That's where we could sleep. Okay. Um, there was a little tiny television up at the front. Mm-hmm. Everybody just went flying up sure. to that television because we had not seen any pictures. Sure. And it was about... About three weeks after I got home, I realized that the pictures I had formed in my head Mm -hmm. from what Captain Sweeney was telling us on that plane, those pictures were in black and white. Mm. It wasn't until I actually saw those pictures in, in colored yeah. on that little television set that it became real. Wow. You know. And so this, by the time you saw that, that would have been the 12th. Yes. Okay. Sort well, of like. Well, we, yeah, the 12th. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. But back to the school bus drivers. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful people. I'm starting to wonder at this point if Shirley's ever met a person she doesn't consider wonderful. When we get on the school bus, we're uh, nervous, obviously. They told us. Did they? Sorry to interrupt, Shirley. Yeah. Did, the, was the reason that you were on the plane for so long that they didn't know where you they were going to take you yet? No, it was because the borders to the United States were closed. Oh, because you had to go through customs. Yeah, we had. I see. Well, see, we, we yeah, we had to go through customs. You know, to, to actually set foot on, on ground. ground. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. But uh, no, the reason all these planes were there was because the borders to the United States were closed. Right now, and I've I've also learned just recently too that there were some of the planes, some of the planes that were not American planes mm-hmm. that had landed there. Mm-hmm. Okay, when when we were free to, you know, when the borders were open, they those planes were not allowed into the United States. They had to they fly back. back. They had to fly back wherever they came from. Yeah, yeah. Even a, though they were even, headed for the U.S. Yeah, originally. even though they were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But anyway, um, we're heading out. We're heading out from from the airport at Gander, and the school. Well, the school bus driver when he's starting to take off, you know, to this little town of Lewisport where mm-hmm. we had been assigned. He stood up at the front of the bus. He says, me name's Moody, but that don't mean that's what I is. So that broke the tension. You know, so down Aww. the road we go, and we're looking, and it's very sparsely population right. populated, you know, trees and rocks and water and all that kind of stuff. We weren't too far outside of Gander when somebody spotted a moose. And so I can see Mr. Moody. He says, "You wants to see her? And we said, yeah, yeah. So he stopped the bus. We put it in reverse. No and we're backing up, you know. And all of us who live in cities, we're breaking our necks. You well, know, sure. The, we were the only thing on the road. Right. Yeah. So he backs up, you know. And so we're sitting there. And we're watching this moose. And the moose keeps coming closer up, closer up to the bus, you know. So finally, Mr. Moody looks in the rearview mirror. You gots enough? <laughs> yeah, we had enough. So on down the road we go. Um, but I started to say, too how the logistics of how they were able to assign all these passengers from all these planes right. to specific locations. It, it's just, to me, it was just a miracle. Yeah, we It's get funny, it. Shirley, because it makes me think about the 
people to people almost that yeah, this sort of was accomplishing was. the same it sort was. of goal. It, absolutely, it was. Yeah. It it was, and I have to say too, on the plane, even though we didn't have you know a lot of food or anything, nobody was hungry. I mean, I think the the stress, the tension, and everything sure. else. As long as we had the water, the and I have to say too that the crew. Uh, the, the flight attendants and everybody else, they were awesome. They were some of my, they were heroes mm-hmm. because they were so professional in every sense of the, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, Nobody had, got angry at them saying, let us off. There or... was one person. Okay. There was one person who felt that uh, he was very important and he was going to get off and you can't keep me on this plane and everything mm-hmm. else. Oh, plain guy. You are me and I am you. This would have 100% been me. Not necessarily because I think I'm very important, but because something in me would have snapped. I almost snapped hearing that she was sitting on a plane for 28 hours. I would have caused trouble. I'm grateful for myself, my own reputation, and all of the flight crew that I was not aboard this flight. The the flight attendants, you know, they tried to work with him, and he was not. He was he was very important. But anyway, the next thing you know, here comes the captain, and he stood in the aisle, and talked with that young man. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't hear what they were saying, but pretty soon the captain walked back up to the cockpit. The fellow sat down in his seat, and there was no more never anymore. No more problems. There with you him. go. No more problems with him. No, they were really thinking about their passengers. Sure. Um, at one point, they'd served us, you know, little bottles of water. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I, you know, I'd run out of water. So I um, went up to see if I could get some more water. And they didn't have any more, but they had the big bottles. Oh, and okay. so I said, oh, I have my bottle. So I went back. I got my bottle. The flight attendant is filling my little bottle with water, and her hand was just shaking. Oh. But you would never know if you looked at her. You would never know. Mm-hmm. At all, except for that hand shaking. Yeah. You know, oh. but, the, but they were. They was were she really, young? No. No. Nope, nervous. No. No. Yeah. But but people really cared for one another. Yeah. Now, did you stay at the Lions Club for those six days? I stayed. No. Uh, of course, the first day was on the plane. Right. And then a couple of days, you know, with uh, you know, uh, at at the Lions Club, and then um, Bill and Thelma, they were running around, you know, doing all, checking out all these things. So Bill was the mayor of Lewisport, and Thelma is his wife. Not just in Lewisport, but in the 14 mm. outport villages that feed into Lewisport for schooling and church and schools. Oh, wow. And so they were running from, you know, from one place, make sure that everything was going well and right. everything. Um, anyway, Thelma then came in uh, at one point, and she realized that that uh, my friend Joe and I were, you know, were, were together. Mm-hmm. And there was a woman from Mississippi who, this was her only her second flight ever in her life. Oh my goodness, poor yeah. thing. So here's this poor woman. I met her in the airport in Frankfurt. Okay. And so kind of took her under my wing, and she had, all she had was a, a black plastic bag of her things. Mm. You know, that's all she had. So we kind of looked out for her. Mm. So yeah. um, when Thelma came up and she said, Bill and I are going to be home this evening, and she said, um, we've got a, a couple of extra bedrooms mm. you know would you like to come and have a proper shower and a nightgown and and stay with us and then she said I noticed that you've been looking out af- after this lady mm. and um, she said how about 
you know, would you like to invite her to? I said, oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah. That'd be wonderful. So sure enough, they she came and she picked us up and in her in the pickup truck and she took us out to a little restaurant, took us around to a couple of other places, and, and then that's where I spent you know the rest of the time. Okay. Until, until we got the word that that we were going to leave, but wow. they they essentially closed down Lewisport. Sure. Everybody was helping from the very old to the teeny tiny little kids. Mm. And as long as I live, these visions of what I saw, I mean, you look over in the corner at the Lions Club and here's a young high school girl with a whole bunch of little kids from our plane sitting on the floor and she's reading stories to them. Mm. Or somebody else would come in and take some of the kids out to the playground. Mm. Or the fisherman would come and say he was going out on his boat. Would anybody like to go with him? You know, all those kinds of things. And people were bringing... They were bringing everything in because, we, as I said, we didn't have our luggage or anything. Right. They had emptied their own homes of towels and washcloths and sheets and and blankets and pillows and everything else. Mm-hmm. They'd brought them all to the to the Lions Club Center. They had uh, they had um, bottles of water. They had they had shampoo and they had sanitary napkins. They had diapers for the kids because we had a lot of kids sure. on our plane, sure. and we had we were not all American. Americans. We had people from a lot of different countries on okay. our. So there, there was the some people didn't speak English. Sure, language barrier. Yeah. yeah. Now, <laughs> the English they speak in Newfoundland, it's English. Kind of. Yeah, you kind of have to. <laughs> <laughs> got to focus, huh? Yeah, you got to focus. You really got to focus. But just such kind people yeah. who felt so bad. Yeah. You know, and I one time I asked um, Bill, the, the mayor, what do the people in Canada think about all of this and the United States and, and everything? And he said at that point, he said, you know, we're so glad to have the United States as our neighbor because we know if we get into any difficulty, the United States is going to be there for us. Yeah. You know, thing for us. Do you think it was, I'm sure it was a combination, but was it more compassion for you guys in particular that you were stranded or compassion just because 9-11 was so terrible and they wanted to help? It was just the way those Newfoundlanders are. Are. Yeah, it's just, part of their I DNA. Mean, it's part of their DNA, and it's here. I have a about three days after we left Lewisport. Okay, the English teacher at the school wrote this song. It's just the way we are. So this teacher and presumably friends recorded this song, and Shirley gave me a copy. So I'm going to play a little bit for you now. In Gander, in the world's airplanes lie waiting on the ground. Over 700 passengers arrive in my small town. The churches, schools, and service clubs that suddenly transform. In the shelters for the stranded souls from all around the world. Everyone just open up their doors and open up their hearts. Miracle began. So, so tell me about when you came back. Well, and you, when we got back, when we got to Atlanta, we had to use our boarding passes, our 9-11 boarding passes for those. Yeah. So you, you were able to fly then to Atlanta. Yeah, we there. flew to Atlanta. We flew to Atlanta. And when we got off of the plane, it, it was really strange because there were no, you know, these big airports, they're always busy and noisy and everything. We get off of this plane and uh, someone told us that we were the second 
international flight to land in Atlanta. Now, whether that's true, I don't know. Okay. But someone had said because most flights were probably still grounded. Yeah, they were. All, yeah, they were grounded. Yeah. And so when we when we got off of the plane and came into the international concourse, there was nobody around. Yeah. And when we came through the through the gate into the area, there were nobody was there except for the Delta employees. They had these big signs, welcome home and flags Aww. and all kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, you know, welcoming. And we're looking around, I mean, because we were the only ones. We're looking, boy, must be somebody famous on our plane. You know, we're looking around. It was for us. It was for you. It was for us. That's and sweet. it was so sweet. But let me ask you too, before I forget. While you were still in Lewisport, mm-hmm. did you have any concept of how long it was going to be before you could go home? No, we had no idea. Um, like when Captain Sweeney was giving us all these different reports, he'd say, well, maybe we can leave by 3 o'clock. And then it was maybe by 6 o'clock. Well, no, probably it's going to have to be, you know, we had no idea. So was there ever a point for you when you thought, we're going to be here forever, like for the long haul? <sighs> no, I never. And you know what? I was never afraid. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, were, yeah. they were afraid, but... Well, I, if I was eight and a half months pregnant. Yeah, yeah, you'd be, you'd yeah, be worried right. too. Yeah, 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 yeah. So a little earlier in our conversation, Shirley had told me a story, and I cut it out just for time's sake, but one of the passengers on her flight was eight and a half months pregnant, so nearing her due date, and understandably, the crew, she says, was very worried about her. This woman was in the military. She ended up getting home in time and was fine, and the baby was fine. But this is such a nightmare. I can't imagine, first of all, being on a plane for 28 hours, being stranded, and being that pregnant. So this is the point where I tell you, as I'm talking to you right now, I am pregnant. I'm not eight and a half months pregnant quite yet. I'm just nearing about six months. But pretty much starting month two, if I were stranded anywhere for more than two hours and I couldn't walk around and eat popsicles and complain to everyone who's willing to listen to me about my lower back, I would be terrified. But I was never afraid. I knew, I I just felt that these people were good people. These were Mm -hmm. kind people. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been doing all the things that they were doing. And they just came out of the woodwork, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, Is it a wealthy area? No. No. Far, far, far from being wealthy. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I'm originally from Benton County in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains in yeah. southeast Ohio. So I went to Ohio University. You went, oh, okay. So, so not we're far yeah, from, yeah. right there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was, it reminded me uh, quite a bit, you know, except far fewer people there and everything. Yeah. So then once you got home, mm-hmm. how did your relationships with them? with Thelma and Bill, and them continue. I mean, why did you do that? Um, The only word that really I could ever think about is bonded. And that happened with so many of these people, with a lot of the passengers. They bonded with the people who who cared for them. I mean, you know, we we talk to each other all the time. I go back. I go back each year to present the scholarships. Right. And um, that's been another thing that has been absolutely amazing. So tell me about that. Okay, the scholarships. So when we finally got the word that we were going to leave... Uh, and so many of the people did the same thing that Joe and I did. You know, we wanted to leave some money to help defray mm. their expenses. Yeah. No, no. Mm, you do the same for us. You would do the same for us. So we get back on the plane, and it's bothering us because we knew they couldn't afford to do what they had done. Yeah. So um, after we got up to cruising altitude, a couple of us got up and, 
you know, and walking around and talking about some of the experiences we'd had. Because mm-hmm. we were all, you know, um, located in different different places. Some were in schools and you okay. know, churches. Different little and, towns uh-huh, and stuff. Little, or you were all in Lewisport? No. Oh. No, a lot, of, a lot of us were in Lewisport. But then people were at Norris Arm, uh, Brown's Arm, Campbellton, you name it. They're mm-hmm. 14. See, Lewisport is kind of the center of, okay. uh, of this area. And so a lot of people, they have to come in for banking and, and churches and all that kind of stuff. For school, they they go to school in their own little towns. I see. Except for the last three years of, of school, they have to come in and go to Lewisport, hmm. what they call collegiate. So it's that it's their high school. Okay. So yeah, as we're talking, there were, there were two, three other men and I were standing in the aisles, just absolutely amazed you know, amazed at what we had experienced. I mean, anyway, we, we all agreed we had to do something, but what can you do? Well, this one fellow said, you know, I learned that a lot of the kids drop out of school. Mm-hmm. He said, I was thinking if maybe we could help one or two kids. All of a sudden, the light bulb went off in my head, and I said, why don't we see if we can't start an endowed scholarship fund? So Shirley had worked for Ohio State University for 35 years. This would have been before this experience on 9-11. She started in administrative work, and then after she retired, she did some fundraising for the school. She was extremely respected in the Ohio State community. They made her an emeritus. She earned her bachelor's degree about 40 years after graduating high school and after she had worked there for a while. So she tells me that she came up with this idea for the endowed scholarship, but she knew that the passengers on her plane were going to scatter once they all landed in Atlanta. So she wanted to ask everybody very quickly for their information so that they could send out letters and correspondence afterwards to collect money for the students in Lewisport. So they asked the flight attendant if she would make an announcement over the speaker. The flight attendant asked the captain for permission. The captain not only agreed, but he then offered to make the first pledge for the scholarship. After that, the flight attendant, Shirley tells me, wanted one of the passengers to make the announcement. And Shirley says that all the guys, including uh, Mr. Businessman, I'm very important, please let me off this plane, all got stage fright and didn't want to do the announcement. So Shirley did it herself. And from there, her fellow passengers ponied up. And those those pledge sheets went through that plane like mm-hmm. crazy. Okay. So when we, you know, when we got ready to get off of the, the plane, there was something over 15,000 U.S. had been pledged to this thing. Mm-hmm. And then the media got hold of this. Of the scholarship? Or the, of, 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 the you know, knowing about, yeah, knowing yeah. about the scholarship that came about mm-hmm. as a result of what the people in Newfoundland yeah. did. And so, I've been back every year except two to actually present the scholarships. Okay. And this year, um, this year we had 20 additional. So since 2002, which was the first year that we presented those, um, 270 kids from a little area that has fewer than 4,000 population, 270 kids have received that scholarship fund because of the kindness that they showed us all those years Mm -hmm. ago. Shirley told me that this year's ceremony was extra emotional because one of the first students who received one of the first scholarships 16 years ago when they started handing out the money has now become a medical doctor, and she actually came back and helped hand out some of the scholarships this year. They not only give money to students 
from Lewisport who are planning to go to college, but Shirley says they also offer the money to kids who are going to technical school or some other non-college program, which I think is awesome. Do you fly into Gander when you go back? Yep. And then Bill and Thelma are always there at the airport. You know? <laughs> While I was up there this time, I decided, and my husband and I decided a long time ago that, that uh, we're going to be cremated. And I decided this time, you know what? Some of my ashes are going to be scattered in Newfoundland. Not all of them, but some of my ashes are going to go to Newfoundland. (laughs) Well, tell me about the play. So Shirley's going to give us a little bit more of a background on this, but there is a play, like I mentioned, on Broadway right now, which is not a small thing. And it's called Come From Away. And it's about this story, about the 38 planes that were stranded in Gander and the way the surrounding communities responded. Okay, the play came about, it was like three or four years ago now. I had a a phone call uh, from this couple, and they told me that they were going to be doing a musical about 9-11. And I said, how can you do a musical about 9-11? I'm thinking, there's no way you can do that. Why would you? Yeah, Yeah. why? Yeah, well, but it's just absolutely wonderful. I love musicals. Oh, this it is so good. The the everything about that musical. Of course, I'm personally involved. Well, do you know? But I trust you. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, now for your listening pleasure, here's a little clip from the Come From Away soundtrack recorded by the original Broadway cast. This song is called Thirty Eight Planes. Um, you know, they interviewed me about oh, the sure. scholarship and, and everything else. And, of course, they interviewed, in the meantime, you know, thousands of, of, of passengers and Newfoundlanders mm-hmm. and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And how they how they were able to consolidate all of these stories. It's my head spins. Yeah. Shirley tells me that the people who wrote the play took some liberties in terms of sort of combining some stories. So it's kind of an amalgamation of some of the things that really happened, but it's all based on anecdotes that they got from people who were there. Anyway, last March, I think it was, I had a phone call from them and they said it was going to be on Broadway and they would really like if I could come. And I'm thinking, it's going to be on Broadway? So one thing just led to another. Yeah, I wasn't able to go until August last year because so many things were going on. But um, what they did, what they did was they arranged for for a docent to take me to Ground Zero and to the the, to the museum and everything. Had you been there yet? No, I couldn't make myself. You know, right after it happened, for years and years, I could not make myself do it. I couldn't do it. They have done a magnificent job. I mean, I've been to the memorial, but not the museum, (laughs) and I Mm -hmm. I think I struggle too. I. I went a couple of years ago. I was in Israel and went to the Holocaust Museum. Oh, yeah. And it was one of those experiences that I'm glad I did, but yeah. I never want to see it again. Yeah. Kind of thing. It's, and I, yeah, it's, I feel it, like I. It's kind of like, um, when, well, with one of my trips with People to People and everything, we met in, in uh, Poland. Oh. And I went to Auschwitz. Yeah. And no, it just. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but so when you, when you saw it in New York, did they recognize you in any way? Yes. <laughs> what did they do? 
<laughs> well, they came, they came and got me. Right. They came and got me, and, you know, we went backstage, and I got to meet all these people. The cast. Now, one of the stories that they have in there, too, okay. has to do with... With this little bonobo. This monkey. Yeah, it's a bonobo. Okay, tell me uh, about Okay, this. okay. On one of the flights, there was a zookeeper from our Columbus Zoo. Okay. Yeah. But I heard uh, that there were two bonobos that were aboard one of those planes. Uh, one was going to be sent to the zoo in Milwaukee, I think, and one was going to stay here in Columbus. Okay. Well, the uh, one that was going to stay here in Columbus got pregnant. And so they decided if the pregnancy went well and the baby was born and was fine, they were going to name the baby Gander. So in December of 2003, little Gander was born and, and little Gander is at the zoo. Yeah. Is yeah. she still there? Yeah. When I was up there for the musical, I was talking with the woman who played the, the woman who really made a pest of herself because she knew there were animals in the bellies of these planes. Oh, no. And she oh, was going to get those animals out of there and everybody said, no. She really, she, she's awesome. I really love that woman. Anyway, so she was able to gather up some of her friends from the SPCA or whatever yeah. they call it, and they got all the animals out of the bellies of the plane, including the bonobos. So they got them, they got them out, and they put them, you know, in one of the hangars, and they're feeding the animals and watering them and doing all this other kind of stuff. Yeah. But, but then they're also, um, you know, the name Hugo Boss. Yeah. Hugo Boss was on, on one of the planes. Yep. And his company was going to send a plane and get him out of there. Uh, yeah. And well, he wasn't having anything to do with that. He said, I'm here. And really? I'm going to, yeah, yeah. And he said, but I do need some fresh underwear. Oh, gosh. Uh-huh. Yeah, oh, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. How fun. good for but, him. Uh, yeah, but we had, oh, my gosh, the people who were aboard those planes. Yeah. Continental 45 is the plane that um, was assigned to the Philadelphia Pentecostal Church in Lewisport. Okay. 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 So these people arrive in this church. It's the biggest church in, in town. Okay. Very, very nice church and everything. And they said they desperately needed to get to some computers because mm -hmm. they needed to check out, you know, what, well, it, what it was. It was the head of the Rockefeller Foundation. And uh, some of the board members of the Rockefeller Foundation. So the minister said, um, "Now the middle school is right across the street." He said, "I'll open. I'll see that the school is open, and I'll call some of the students to get the computers up and running." Yeah. Okay. The Rockefeller Foundation was run from the middle school in Lewisport, Newfoundland. For, for days and days and days. That's so is, cool. Isn't that a wonderful story? Yeah, and so the computer center, you know, they just yeah. put together whatever they yeah, could sure. or whatever, but they were able, those Rockefeller people were able to... to they got they, it done. They got it done. They got it done. So what they they were wanted to do was to pro provide new computers for the middle school. And the principal, no, 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 no. And, you know, so they finally, they finally gave in. And so they sent a check that was enough to totally gut this pitiful little computer center that they had at the middle school, put in the highest, best equipment possible. As you know by now, as well as I do, Shirley is full of stories. And every one of them is of something amazing that came out of this experience. I had so much fun talking with her. I hope you had fun hearing about it. It's just really cool. I know I mentioned this at the beginning, but it's cool to hear of some really positive things that came out of 9-11. I don't want to get 
overly sentimental about it, but the people who perpetrated 9-11 hate the way that Westerners live, and I love that what they did almost made us lean into who we are even more. People who care about each other regardless of religion or anything else. So this has been episode 10 of the I Was There Win podcast. Thanks so much for listening, guys. As always, if you haven't already, please head over to iTunes, leave a rating or a review or both. That just helps get more eyes and ears onto the podcast. C.S. Lewis writes, What you see and what you hear depend a great deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you guys soon.